Hello and welcome to Steve's English Podcast. This is the story of Glamis Castle. Of all the hauntings in Scotland, none has gained such widespread notoriety as the hauntings of Glamis Castle, the seat of the Earl of Strathmore and King Horn in Forfarshire. Part of the castle, that part which is the more frequently haunted, is of ancient though uncertain date. And if there is any truth in the tradition that Duncan was murdered there by Macbeth, must, at any rate, have been in existence at the commencement of the 11th century. Of course, extra buildings have, from time to time, been added and renovations made. But the original structure remains pretty nearly the same as it always has been, and is included in a square tower that occupies a central position and commands a complete view of the entire castle. Within this tower, the walls of which are 15 feet thick, there is a room, hidden in some unsuspected quarter that contains a secret, the keynote to one, at least, of the hauntings, which is known only to the Earl, his heir, on the attainment of his 21st birthday, and the factor of the estate. In all probability, the mystery attached to this room would challenge but little attention, were it not for the fact that unearthly noises, which at the time were supposed to proceed from this chamber, have been heard by various visitors sleeping in the square tower. The following experience is said to have happened to a lady named Bond. I append it more or less in her own words. It is a good many years since I stayed at Glamis. I was, in fact, but little more than a child and had only just gone through my first season in town. But though young, I was neither nervous nor imaginative. I was inclined to be what was termed stolid, that is to say, extremely matter-of-fact and practical. Indeed, when my friends exclaimed, You don't mean to say you are going to stay at Glamis? Don't you know it's haunted? I burst out laughing. Haunted, I said. How ridiculous. There are no such things as ghosts. One might as well believe in fairies. Of course, I did not go to Glamis alone. My mother and sister were with me. But whereas they slept in the more modern part of the castle, I was, at my own request, apportioned a room in the square tower. I cannot say that my choice had anything to do 
with the secret chamber. That, and the alleged mystery, had been dinned into my ears so often that I had grown thoroughly sick of the whole thing. No, I wanted to sleep in the square tower for quite a different reason. A reason of my own. I kept an aviary. The tower was old, and I naturally hoped its walls would be covered with ivy and teeming with birds' nests, some of which I might be able to reach and, I am ashamed to say, plunder from my window. Alas for my expectations. Although the square tower was so ancient that in some places it was actually crumbling away, not the sign of a leaf, not the vestige of a bird's nest could I see anywhere. The walls were abominably, brutally bare. However, it was not long before my disappointment gave way to delight. For the air that blew in through the open window was so sweet, so richly scented with heather and honeysuckle, that the view of the broad, sweeping, thickly wooded grounds, so indescribably charming that, despite my inartistic and unpoetical nature, I was entranced, entranced as I had never been before, and never have been since. Ghosts, I said to myself, ghosts, how absurd. How preposterously absurd. Such an adorable spot as this can only harbour sunshine and flowers. I well remember, too, for, as I have already said, I was not poetical. How much I enjoyed my first dinner at Glamis. The long journey and keen mountain air had made me hungry and I thought I had never tasted such delicious food, such ideal salmon from the esk, and such heavenly fruit. But I must tell you that, although I ate heartily, as a healthy girl should, by the time I went to bed, I had thoroughly digested my meal, and was, in fact, quite ready to partake of a few oatmeal biscuits I found in my dressing case and remembered having bought at Perth. It was about 11 o'clock when my maid left me and I sat for some minutes wrapped in my dressing gown before the open window. The night was very still and save for an occasional rust of the wind in the distant treetops the hooting of an owl, the melancholy cry of a puet, and the hoarse barking of a dog. The silence was undisturbed. The interior of my room was, in nearly every particular, modern. The furniture was not old. There were no grim carvings, no grotesquely fashioned tapestries on the walls, no dark cupboards, no gloomy corners. 
all was cozy and cheerful. And when I got into bed, no thought of boggle or mystery entered my mind. In a few minutes, I was asleep. And for some time, there was nothing but a blank. A blank in which all identity was annihilated. Then suddenly I found myself in an oddly shaped room with a lofty ceiling and a window situated at so great a distance from the black oaken floor as to be altogether inaccessible from within. Feeble gleams of phosphorescent light made their way through the narrow panes and served to render distinct the more prominent objects around. But my eyes struggled in vain to reach the remoter angles of the wall, one of which inspired me with terror such as I had never felt before. The walls were covered with heavy draperies that were sufficient in themselves to preclude the possibility of any save the loudest of sounds penetrating without. The furniture, if such one could call it, puzzled me. It seemed more fitted for the cell of a prison or lunatic asylum, or even for a kennel, than for an ordinary dwelling room. I could see no chair, only a coarse deal table, a straw mattress, and a kind of trough. An air of irredeemable gloom and horror hung over and pervaded everything. As I stood there, I felt I was waiting for something. Something that was concealed in the corner of the room I dreaded. I tried to reason with myself, to assure myself that there was nothing there that could hurt me, nothing that could even terrify me. But my efforts were in vain. My fears grew. Had I some definite knowledge as to the cause of my alarm, I should not have suffered so much. But it was my ignorance of what was there, of what I feared, that made my terror so poignant. Each second saw the agony of my suspense increase. I dared not move. I hardly dare breathe. And I dreaded lest the violent pulsation of my heart should attract the attention of the unknown presence and precipitate it coming out. Yet, despite the perturbation of my mind, I caught myself analyzing my feelings. It was not danger I abhorred so much as its absolute effect, fright. I shuddered at the bare thought of what result the most trivial incident, the creaking of a board, ticking of a beetle, or hooting of an owl, might have on the intolerable agitation of my soul. 
in this unnerved and pitiable condition, I felt that the period was bound to come sooner or later, when I should have to abandon life and reason together in the most desperate of struggles with fear. At length, something moved. An icy chill ran through my frame, and the horror of my anticipations immediately reached its culminating point. The presence was about to reveal itself. The gentle rubbing of a soft body on the floor, the crack of a bony joint, breathing, another crack, and then, was it my own excited imagination or the disturbing influence of the atmosphere or the uncertain twilight of the chamber that had produced before me in the Stygian darkness of the recess the vacillating and indistinct outline of something luminous and horrid. I would gladly have risked futurity to have looked elsewhere. I could not. My eyes were fixed. I was compelled to gaze steadily in front of me. Slowly, very slowly, the thing, whatever it was, took shape. Legs, crooked, misshapen, human legs. A body, tawny and hunched. Arms, long and spidery, with crooked, knotted fingers. A head, large and bestial, and covered with a tangled mass of grey hair that hung around its protruding forehead and pointed ears in ghastly mockery of curls. A face, and herein was the realization of all my direst expectations. A face, white and staring, pig-like in formation, malevolent in expression, a hellish combination of all things foul and animal, and yet withal not without a touch of pathos. As I stared at it aghast, it reared itself on its haunches after the manner of an ape and leered piteously at me. Then, shuffling forward, it rolled over and lay sprawled out like some ungainly turtle and wallowed as for warmth in the cold grey beams of early dawn. At this juncture, the handle of the chamber door turned. Someone entered. There was a loud cry, and I awoke. Awoke to find the whole tower, walls and rafters ringing with the most appalling screams I have ever heard. Screams of something or of someone. For there was in them a strong element of what was human as well as animal, in the greatest distress. Wondering what it meant, 
and more than ever terrified. I sat up in bed and listened. Listened whilst a conviction, the result of intuition, suggestion, or what you will, but a conviction all the same, forced me to associate the sounds with the thing in my dream, and I associate them still. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Goodbye.